Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the show. You are on the Road to Recovery with Yona Bud. I will be your host this evening along with Devon and Corey uh, in the back end, making sure that everything goes smoothly. And Corey will take the calls from you if you have questions, ideas, concepts, or things you want to say and share with us. You can do that at 416-870-6400, or if you live outside the area of Toronto, 888-225-8255. Corey would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you. That's how this show works. You talk to me, we talk to you. It's interactive, and it's usually a lot of fun. So tonight we got a lot of stuff to do. Busy show, a couple of guests. Uh, stay with us. Um, and uh, if you have, again, any questions or things or thoughts you want to share as it relates to the stuff that we're uh, talking about at the time in each of the segments, give us a call. want to hear from you. And, uh, you know, you can always call just to say, hey, Yona, what's up? Love to hear from you as well. You know, it, I wonder if there's something about the fact that the addiction and mental health guy is followed by the Couch Potatoes, which, by the way, is a great show. Um, followed by the Couch Potatoes. So I guess you get, like, really baked and, like, you're sitting on the couch and then maybe you listen to the mental health and addiction guy and try to kind of rethink your life as to, oh, really? Should I really be getting stoned on a Saturday night at 9 o'clock? Well, listen, I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to help and listen and be a part of whatever I can do to make a little difference in people's lives day by day. So thanks so much and uh, love to hear from you, even if you are a little bit baked. Just be kind when you talk to the folks that answer the phone. That's all. Anyway, tonight we're going to start off in our uh, first hour is usually about kids. You know, it's usually because, you know, younger parents are kind of still up at this hour, maybe. Uh, and then, in the you know, after 10 o'clock, it's a little bit more X-rated. Not really, just a little more adult-like. So that's how this Road to Recovery works on this uh, on the path for the next couple of hours. And uh, we'd love you to just stick with us. We know you have choices, and we appreciate that you chose us. You know, speaking of making choices, you know, young kids feel very unlucky today. You know, young the young Canadians, young generation, not just kids, young the young generation of Canadians are just feeling really unlucky. Unlucky. You know, they're plagued by climate change and soaring home prices, all kinds of economic inequality and poverty, and you know, which we all had all that before anyway. But they don't necessarily like the path that Canada's on. And they cite the baby boomer generation as the root cause of disparity and division in Canadian society today. So Angus Reid, the Institute, they, you know, the survey folks, they did a survey of young Canadian leaders and found that almost half of the respondents thought that the answer to Canadians' woes relied not on fixing the past mistakes in previous generations, but rather starting anew with a complete restructuring of Canadian society. So I like the concept of starting anew. That's what we believe in here on this show. We believe in, you know, fresh day, new day. Today's the day that matters. Tomorrow's a new day, right? Today's the day that counts in a mindful kind of way. So mindfulness is all about staying in the moment. But the uh, the study asked um, Canadians of all ages to self-report and do they consider themselves leaders in their community, you know, to incite change in their community through volunteering, uh, political involvement, that kind of stuff. So these self-identified young leaders, all under the age of 40, they were likely to prioritize the common good and the general belief that what's good for society holds more of importance than a person's individual rights and freedoms. So I'm not a political guy. I'm not sure if that sounds right politically, but it certainly sounds right, you know, ethically and morally, right? So according to this generational split, the younger leaders also reported higher educational levels and slightly more personal wealth than the non-leaders. 
So to be found more and more diverse, and they were also found to be more and more diverse than their older counterparts in terms of race and gender. So more people of color, more you know, more you know, more women likely in the in the split versus men. I believe that's still the gender count today. Uh, most young leaders agree that uh, there's a legacy of baby boomer generation, not be the legacy at all. Right? It might just be this this thing that we, we we're not happy about. So the young leaders under forty say that the baby boomers' legacy is negative. And the majority of the people over 55 uh, say that uh, the legacy that they're leaving behind is positive. Baby boomers came in age of what they call an optimistic time in our, in our lives, uh, feeling like things were getting better. They had some taste, at least from their parents, like no, from my parents for sure, uh, if not themselves, how bad things can be. You know? So we, if you're older, you had a chance to live through a life with parents who might have gone through a depression or recession. Um, this new generation, not so much. So younger generations, however, are optimistic that the millennial generation will leave behind a more positive legacy than the boomers. But on the flip side of the equation, older generations don't have much faith. Half of those over 40 think millennials will leave the world in worse shape than they got it, right? Top, top issues in the world, reconciliation, while older leaders think uh, reporting, you know, leaders being reported being more concerned about inflation and balancing money and budgets and things. <clears throat> so there's this... Um, this fellow, his name is Dr. Curl, and he points out that Canada's at an inflection point. So they're very focused on what's wrong, right? So he says, I think it may be a time where we're too focused on things that are going wrong and may not be reflecting enough on the things that are going right. Absolutely right. So here is where I jump in with this cognitive behavioral therapy pitch and say, see it through positive lenses. You know, you got to take from the day, whoever you are, millennial or not, baby boomer or not, it's important to take from the day, from the moment, the best you got. It's easy to find the worst stuff, the stuff that's you know, yucky about the day, but you got to find the positive stuff, the sunshine, if you will, in the dark clouds. So let's focus on all the things we're doing right and concentrate on trying to fix some of the things we're doing wrong, but not drag ourselves down with it in terms of a world of despair. Because when you live in a world of despair, young or old, you don't really have much motivation to get out of bed. So if the world's coming to an end, if you will, and we're and, and all the clouds are going to be gone, and there's no ozone later left, and we're not the sun's going to burn us up, or whatever people are talking about, you're not motivated to get up and go do anything. So focus on the qualities, the opportunities, the fact that science is so amazing today, medicine is so amazing today, and getting better research. You know, world leaders in research and development around uh, all kinds of, of new medicines and therapy uh, uh, opportunities and modalities are all sharing worldwide with worldwide leaders and, you know, just by clicking on a Zoom button, if you will. So we're in a great place in terms of being able to share. But a lot of people feel very unlucky. About 40% of all leaders and their counterparts aged 40 and under say that their generation has lacked opportunity. Now, I'm standing back and I'm thinking to myself, lack of, I've only got a few minutes left. We could go on with this forever, but lack of opportunity? Come on, man. The last couple of decades, there's nothing but opportunity. People have become famous on YouTube by shooting a video in their dining room or their bathroom or their outside in the backyard. And as it should be, by the way. There was a time where you'd have to spend fortunes of money to get into a production studio to show your talent, to show your, your, your skills. I think there's been all kinds of help. All kinds of opportunity. Maybe this 40 and under group were just a little bit too pampered when they were growing up. I think there's more multimillionaire millennials, young, younger generation under 40. I think there's more of those today than there ever was.
or maybe, you know, since the dot-com era, however long that ago was, however long ago that was, excuse me. So three-quarters of the leaders age 40 and under agree that white people benefit from social opportunities not given to visible minorities. Well, I think today we're finding more and more opportunities for visible minorities, and I certainly see that on the rise. Things are certainly getting better. So the older generations that were surveyed feel most lucky in terms of overall quality of life. The younger cohorts feel fortunate when it comes to social acceptance and freedom. It's more acceptable today, for example, to be gay. It's more acceptable today to be uh, a woman in an executive role. And, and, and by the way, as it should be, should have been a long time ago. But it is where we are today. So I think that those negative kids that think that the world's not worth living and that you know it sucks to be a Canadian and all that kind of stuff really need to give it a rethink and figure out where the world might be better, a better opportunity, a better place to go. Because I'll tell you, I've been a lot. I've been to a lot of places, talked to a lot of people, been to many countries. And Canada still seems to be the best place for opportunity, growth, develop, develop development, social acceptance, and so on. So while they may be a little, uh, a little bit, you know, bruised. This is a great place to live, and I hope people get their heads around that and do what they can to make it even a better country and a better society for our children and grandchildren for the years to come. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of kids that did some amazing things over the last 15 years, uh, raised a lot of money for sick kids just because they care. And that's the kind of story we like to share here on The Road to Recovery. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, 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 welcome back. Thanks for joining us tonight. This is Yona Bud. I am driving the bus today on the road to recovery. I appreciate you joining us. We know you have other choices and we're glad that you were glad that you chose us. So thanks so much for being on this road trip with us and uh, hope you're enjoying yourself. And if not, let us know 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. My good friend Corey was telling me he's sitting in the studio waiting for someone to call. So even if you don't want to talk to me or get on air, give Corey a call and say, hey, Corey, what's up? Because he's feeling a little lonely, maybe just a touch, you know, underappreciated. Although we love him here, that's for sure. There would be no show without our buddy Corey Manuel. So anyway, speaking of great combinations and teams, like that segue, brother and sister duo, brother and sister duo praise for sick kids charity work over 15 years. They're such special kids. Uh, Maria Saro, the staff reporter, uh, put this together. They're talking about Zachary and Maya Winkler and 15 years of organizing charity events supporting Sick Kids Foundation came to a triumphant end on Sunday. So I'm a little saddened by the fact it came to a triumphant end. We did try to get a hold of somebody from the Winkler family without any, without much success, but it is, you know, late at night on a Saturday night, I suppose. And we wanted to talk to them because, you know, maybe there's something we can do to help them continue this thing. But anyway, when the philanthropic brother and sister do a raise, they raised $10,000 um, on this Sunday that they uh, put this thing together. Articles on November set written on November 7th. So bringing their total donation towards ch- uh, children's health and, me- and medical research uh, in the 15 years to $161,000. Just a couple of kids, right? More than 150 people would gather in the Winklers and five of their neighborhood's driveways in Thornhill on Sunday afternoon to enjoy the family's last Do Something Sweet event. Activities included face painting and flat inf- inflatable games, balloon animals, photo booth, and silent auction featuring a hat signed by basketball legend Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. 
It's very emotional, said Maya, speaking to the star a few hours before the start, the start of the event. Family and friends have encouraged her and Zachary, known to loved ones as Zach, to continue hosting fundraisers for the hospital, she added, but brings the community together. It's something that everyone looks forward to every year. It's just sad that this is the last one. So I'll tell you why. Because Zach has grown up, and he's going off to fight um, in the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, Zachary and Maya are both uh, from uh, observantly Jewish families in Thornhill. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know that because they're wearing skull caps, and uh, I can tell that it looks like an observant set of parents. And um, anyway, so he's going off to uh, Jewishly observant. I mean, uh, going off to the Israeli Defense Forces, and she's contemplating what she's going to do after high school. But it doesn't surprise me. Forget that it's the Israeli Defense Forces. It's just you know something that a typical you know nineteen year old may not do. Seventeen, nineteen, eighteen, nineteen year old may not do. But this kid, these kids. Zach and Maya, you have to believe that they had unbelievable parenting and continue to have unbelievable parenting. Because not only is this kid giving back to help, you know, sick kids and, and you know, people in his community, but he's going to help his, uh, his uh, brethren and sisters in, in Israel defend the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish state, if you will. So, I mean, that, that takes a lot of parts for a kid who's you know, grown up in Thornhill, so not so much obsessed by, you know, what kind of roommates he's going to have in the university, the kind of car he's going to drive if his dad will buy him a car or, you know, some of the other stuff that, you know, a lot of kids are focused on today if they come from fortunate families. And for those from less fortunate families, all they're hoping for is to come out of an environment that's, you know, dangerous and difficult. Zach's putting himself in harm's way to try to make a difference. Anyway, I digress. So the, the, they raised all this money for hospital sick children. She, anyway, Maya... Uh, when she was three years old, uh, was, was treated at SickKids for something called Kawasaki disease. And if you don't know what that is, it's a terrible disease. It's an in, in illness that causes inflation, inflammation of the blood vessels, and it's almost uh, the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children uh, from uh, modern world. Some kids diagnosed with the sickness experience rashes on their bodies and so on. Zach and his mom had also read a story in the newspaper about a boy hospitalized with sick kids at the same time with a brain tumor. So that's when my brother, this is Maya telling the story, that's when my brother really wanted to start helping these kids, right? Remembering that cotton candy machine. So his dad, Richard, uh, owned a, owns, I guess maybe still, owned a, at the time a, a cotton candy machine. God, I wish my dad had a cotton candy machine when I was a kid. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe I need to go buy a cotton candy machine so my grandchildren can say, you know what, my Zadie has a cotton candy machine. Anyway. So they, they decided that they'd hand out cones of homemade fairy floss in exchange for donations for sick kids when Maya first got sick. So he wanted to make a, a difference, says Richard, and he's the owner of something called Happy Days. He does balloon decorations and centerpiece work and fun food. Uh, it's a fun food company in the greater Toronto area okay, called Happy Days. You want to reach out because this guy's obviously something special because his, his, his kids are extremely special. If he can produce beautiful children, you can imagine – the, the, the centerpieces and balloon decorations this guy can create. And I'm sure the mom is right in there too. So the kids come from sort of party world, not party world in terms of, you know, smoking dope and drinking beer, but, the, you know, the decoration world, the world of celebration, fun, fun foods and things like that. Parents go on to say that they're very special kids, no kidding. She was very young at the time, but now in my 17, she remembers participating in some of the first annual fundraisers when it was just her family's and friend, family and friends that would show up and, 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 you know, give them some money, I guess, for whatever they were handing out at the time. She was in charge of giving out the kids' stickers, the sick kids' stickers. 
and her brother handed out the cotton candy 15 years later. Uh, it's been growing and growing and growing. So now the money raised is used to support different efforts at SickKids. In 2018, the donations went towards the hospital's Teeny Tiny Hearts campaign for complex infant cardiac surgery. Uh, another year, funds were earmarked for something called the snoozle Room, a controlled multisensory environment, which is very helpful for people with autism, children with autism, and other de- developmental uh, disabilities, brain, brain injuries, dementia, and so on. They've actually gotten letters, Maya says, from the children thanking us because we've supported the hospital and helped so many kids. So as of this past Sunday at 5.30, shortly after the end of their in-person event, the Winklers had raised $10,740 on line donations, bettering their $10,000 goal. Typically around 250 people will show up to their two-hour event. Kate McHugh Escobar, who's the Director of Community uh, Partnership at Sick Kids, goes on to say that Zach and Maya have set an inspirational example for other kids to learn about philanthropy. It, it's, un, it's a great story in a time where we're not hearing a lot of great stories, which is why I'm sharing this story. So if you're bored, I'm sorry. If you're excited, join me. And uh, if you want to yell out a, at a boy and at a girl to Zach and Maya, you can do so at 416-870-6400, and we'll share it for you on air here. But uh, on behalf of everyone at Chorus and myself and um, at a boy, Zach, and at a girl, Maya, you kids are unbelievable. Uh, their fun-filled, creative community fundraising events involved family and friends and neighbors. Uh, it was really qu- quite wonderful. Well, Zach actually won several awards, including our Kids Believe in Sick Kids Award in 2014 and the United Jewish Appeal Teen Philanthropy Award in 2015. It, it's just these kids are just well-motivated. Um, the Star's parent company is involved in a fundraiser and ed- educational partnership with the Hospital for Sick Kids, Jordan Bidov, uh, Bidov, who's the publisher and co-proprietor of the Star. He's also a member of the Sick Kids Foundation Board. I knew his father well. Uh, may he rest in peace. We worked on some charity stuff together with him and his brothers. Uh, great family. The Bidovs are, Bidovs are huge in giving back to the community, their community and others. Uh, just a wonderful giving family. It's so great to see Jordan uh, continue with, especially with the weight he has at the star. So amazing. There, there's another example of, you know, a great father and mother team just raising phenomenal kids. Every one of the Bitoff children uh, give back in some way. So uh, way to go, Maya. Way to go, Zach. We're really proud of you. Uh, I'm really proud of you. It's a great uh, inspiration. Uh, Zach, I hope if you're listening, I hope you keep your head down in, uh, in Israel and uh, come back in uh, one complete peace and uh, without too much... Uh, too much trauma, hopefully. And uh, yeah, man, I expect that uh, Maya will be right behind doing what her brother did in another year or two. So uh, kudos to the family and uh, we'll miss you. Sick kids will miss you and your contributions. But I have a funny feeling we're going to hear more about Zach and Maya in the years to come as they become very strong, powerful adults uh, doing whatever it is they choose to do. I'm sure that they're going to make a difference. Uh, when we come back, uh, not such a great story. We're going to talk about uh, a mother sharing a story of her two children being beaten uh, in a park in the evening, uh, twin boys, and uh, such that they don't want to leave the house. They're completely traumatized. And uh, anyway, come back from break. We're going to share that story and uh, whatever else comes up. See you in just a minute. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. This is Yona Bud from uh, 640 Toronto in the studio with Devon and Corey. And um, 
sharing some stuff with you tonight here and appreciate you joining us as always. And uh, I'm told that I have to kind of keep saying that because you never know who's going to tune in for the first time. So I hope you don't think I'm like Alzheimer's or something, God forbid. I did remember I said it earlier, but apparently a good host is supposed to do that in the beginning of each segment. So here I am. It's Yona, but I'm, if you haven't joined us before, it's me again. I, uh, I did all the right stuff. Anyway, on a serious note, very serious note here. Um, God, it's difficult to share stories like this. So we're talking about a woman. Her name is Tammy Isbell. She's got twin teenage boys. They live in the annex, and uh, they went pumpkin picking, and one of the boys wanted to put a weapon in his backpack in case somebody jumped him from behind. The other told his parents he was afraid to go outside because he can't take another beating. So these kids were beaten uh, in Trinity Bellwoods Park on 930 on a Friday night. And the police say that the suspects believed to be in their between the ages 15 and 17 years old also stole a pair of their sneakers and left the victims with cuts and bruises before they fled. This is post-traumatic stress at, at you know, it's uh, the ultimate in terms of post-traumatic stress. These kids were outside in what they believed a safe environment, and they were beaten. I mean, beaten such that they were bruised and banged and cut and, you know, have your shoes stolen? I remember when I was a kid, the police used to take my shoes when they would take me down to Cherry Beach to ask me questions about things when I wasn't such a good kid. And, um, you know, having to walk back in the snow from the bottom of uh, the Don Valley Parkway in those days and uh, with no shoes on. So not having a pair of shoes could be really, you know, could really impact your psyche, your state of mind for sure, and your confidence, right? Someone steals your lunch, steals your shoes, steals your coat. That's really kind of a like getting spit on. It's less, you know, it's not so much having anything broken in terms of bones, but in terms of emotional impact, it's really disgusting. It's really difficult to cope with. So her kids are usually resilient, but this time it's been really traumatizing, she says. What happened to my son was awful. My son's was awful and affected all of us. So there was an incident nearly two weeks ago when the police say a group of five boys assaulted the two, two, two uh, twin teens in Trinity Bellwoods, like I said, at 930. They said another assault of, and a robbery incident took place on the Halloween weekend in Christie Pitts at around 1030. They, they believe maybe they're potentially the same group. They say there's no known connection between the two incidents, but add that the groups of young people have been meeting in parks over the last few months, resulting in assaults and robberies. Of course they're going to get together in parks. We've been doing that forever. Kids get together in the park or they get together in someone's house or at the back of a plaza or in the back of a schoolyard. That's where we get together when we don't have a place to go and no real money. So the idea is you're there together. Anyway, the incidences, uh, incidents have been isolated for these uh, specific groups, um, and they don't suggest that there's any issues or any concern for the uh, wider members of public. On two different weekends in October, police laid charges over recovered stolen property in two relation to two robberies that took place. But um, they just suggest that we be, as a community, as a society, be extra vigilant. Well, if you're living in Toronto, you need to be extra vigilant anyway. Uh, in any city, you should be extra vigilant because things aren't what they used to be. And uh, there's a lot of uh, unhappy people, a lot of people with uh, mental health issues that are potentially violent, lots of people just angry. So you got to be careful out there. Anyway, the issue should be taken more seriously for people who visit parks to feel safer. Sons who are age 17, they've just gone to the park with regular kids. There's usually a couple hundred kids hanging out at the park. One of her sons was wearing some expensive costume. He's worn it every year on Halloween. A group came up on them and some altercation took place. Mother suggested it was an intense beating. They broke my son's braces. 
uh, noting her son's costume was damaged in the encounter and the suspect stole his shoes, as we said earlier. Police issued the, the kid. One of the kids had a was wearing a mask and had a police issued baton and was beating my son mercilessly. So mercilessly, you can buy these batons at flea markets. You can buy handcuffs. You can buy all kinds of uh, you know um, pepper spray and things like that. You can buy stuff at at certain flea markets and certain markets that um, you can use as weapons, and no one seems to be checking. Certainly, a police issued baton. Um, I believe it's one of those that you know can probably you know, they they uh, open up, right? I do have a couple that I u- used to use in the days when I would go out late at night looking for missing kids into some difficult neighborhoods, so I would have a little bit of protection with me. Uh, but you know these you know these devices, these batons that um, they extend, right? Extendable batons, and you know there's just. I don't know, man. Young kids are just, when we were kids, when I was, let me go back. When I was 16, 17, 18, we fought. Uh, we fought at the back of the school. You know, the odd kid brought a baseball bat. I mean, one year I think I brought chains because, you know, I thought I was a big shot until I realized that they're really hard to, 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 to throw around. You know, you can, I got hit myself basically in the back of the head with, with the chains I thought I was going to hit somebody else with. So that didn't last long. But I mean, we, we would fight with our fists, you know, and, the odd guy would bring like a like a pocket knife and you know put it away when he realized how stupid it was because it was two and a half inches long and not much you know can't really yield it plus it closes on itself it doesn't lock in those days right we didn't have those kinds of weapons that you have now and who would even think of bringing it I mean the guys that brought baseball bats never thought of ever hitting anybody with them I mean I was never going to really sw- swing a chain and you know crack somebody in the head with it we just wanted to be big shots and scare people well. You know, nowadays it's not enough to be a big shot and scare people. Now you got to actually do serious damage to prove that you're something, I suppose. You know, and a bunch of kids, four, five, six kids, come up on two on two boys and 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 do them, you know, do them in one, you know, all five of them at once. That that just never flies. You know, never you never used to fly in my day either. It was a you know it was, you know be four, five, six, eight guys on each other, but it was usually only one on one at each time. It was rare that it would be three guys on one, and if it was, it didn't last long because my buddies or their buddies or somebody would come in and try to even it up. Now it's, it's, it's attack and pack, right? You attack in packs of people because you're so scared, and there's such little people doing the attacking, such insecure little people doing the attacking. You know, they stomped on this kid's head. They kicked his body. They kicked him in the face. They were twisting. They, they twisted and bent his arms. Stole his shoes, like I said. Tried to get his his his, uh, his costume off of him, right? Like it's just you know, he used to fight over something, fight over turf, fight over a girl in the day or a boy. If you know you're involved in in uh, you know in those days, girls fought over boys and boys fought over girls. But however that plays out today, you know, fight over somebody you love, maybe fight over something. You know, somebody wronged you in terms of. You know, said something nasty about your mother, maybe. I don't know. That's probably not a great idea. I'm not suggesting there's ever really a reason to fight because I'm not that kind of guy anymore. But when I was a kid, I get it. I get to where these kids are today. They're angry. They're pissed off with everybody. The world's not a great place for them, they don't think. And mostly, and, and especially kids that come from, you know, more, more uh, challenged neighborhoods where they're not getting the same opportunities. But let me tell you, the kids in, in the higher-valued the higher home neighborhoods also do bad stuff to one another. 
maybe you know they, maybe they don't fight in the park the same way, but they certainly do a lot of damage to to personal property. And you know, look what happened at the St. Mike's Collegiate in the school with the kid in the in, in the in the. Uh, I mean, that's that's a high end private school. They're raping kids in the in the in the in the bathroom with a broomstick. These kids are stomping on each other's heads and arms and kicking. I mean, we. I mean, even when I would fight with somebody as a kid. I'd never punch him in the face. I, I, just, I don't know. I mean, I did when I boxed, you know, and I, and whenever it was a real street fight as I got older, sure, you know, when you had to protect yourself, you you do whatever you got to do. I had to do that a bunch of times. But, I mean, not in a not in a stupid little fight like this. And it would never be three, four guys on one. We just never thought of it. At least my my guys didn't think of it. I'll tell you, if you talk to my friend Marcel Wilson, who's an incredible human being who helps uh, kids in crisis, families in crisis, and mentoring families comes from, you know, comes from gangs and guns, uh, violence in his day as a kid growing up, even he would tell you, we've talked about it before. Things were just f- more fair. You know, you went after, you went after guys in the gang for certain gang related stuff, but you never did their family. You never went after their children or children in their community or their moms or their dads, or they ate or slept or shot up a funeral. He just didn't do that stuff in those days. So I don't know, my friends, I feel really bad for this lady and her kids. Uh, she she's now saying you know she's not even sure if they're going to press charges because she retali- you know she's fear of retaliation against her sons and she doesn't want the case to drag through the courts forever so her kids have to be dragged through it but you know what she does say and I love this woman this mom I don't even know her but she says honestly I don't want these kids to go to jail I just want them to get some therapy and support that's we need more moms like that anyway we we wish them well when we come back from break we're going to talk about not kids beating up kids but adults given permission to do so in the criminal code. Yeah, when I read this article, I almost threw up. I'll tell you how I got the strap when I was six. Anyway, we'll see you in a minute. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is Yona Bud. You're on the Road to Recovery. appreciate you uh, tuning in with us this evening. You know, when I was... Uh, what was I in fourth grade? Fourth grade. I'm not even sure how old I was. Maybe eight, seven, eight. I don't know how old you are in fourth grade. I don't remember. My wife would tell me if she was here, but she's not. She's in another part of the space. So anyway, um, I got the strap. Not once, not twice, but a bunch of times. And um, no doubt I probably deserved it uh, in terms of what I did in those days. I was just not a good kid uh, for most of my uh, growing in my years growing up until I, I found my way through later on in my life. It's another story, another time. But anyway, um, so I remember getting the strap and, you know, the first time it stung like crazy and my hands hurt it forever, hurt for the whole day, hurt it. My hands hurt for the whole day. Um, but you know, it was kind of a badge of honor amongst my buddies, you know, like I was the tough kid at school running around the playground and no one wanted to go near me because I just got the strap. So I got to be one of those bad kids. Right. Um, but after the second time, I just got pissed off. Didn't do anything to curb my, my, uh, anger to curb my behavior, did nothing to help me at all. So there's something called section 43 in our criminal code. It's been around since 1892. And what it says here is every school teacher, parent, or person standing in the place of a parent is justified in using force by way of correction towards a pupil or child, as the case may be, who is under his care, not, not, not their care, his care, so you know how old this is, if the force does not, uh, does not exceed what is reasonable under circumstances. 
Like, holy crap. What does that mean? Oddly, the purpose of Section 43 was not to protect a child, but to protect adults from being charged for assault or using physical force against children. Um, anyway, it goes on and on. This is for children between the ages of 2 and 12. Really? Like, there's a reason to hit a 2-year-old? It banned hitting children with objects. Well, that's great. Children can still be hit with hands, but not on the head. I guess keep their, keep it away from their face. Evidence has shown there is absolutely no positive outcome, only negative outcome from physical punishment with kids. I read the article, wanted to throw up, and decided that we would talk about it tonight with our new friend. Her name is Ruth Miller. She was uh, she born was born and grew up in Toronto. She completed her Bachelor of Arts at the University of Toronto, spent a year in Paris at the Sorbonne. She taught uh, high school uh, French and then uh, music and movement for young children. She then returned to Oise to complete her uh, master's in education, worked for the Toronto Public Health for 20 years as a sexual health educator. She's the author of three picture books for children, and she's currently working on another picture book. Her articles appear in the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, as well in sexual health publications. Ruth, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, I'm sure when you look at this stuff and read about this stuff, it makes you want to throw up as well, right? (laughs) Well... I'm way past that in terms of how I feel about all of this. And I just want to say, Yona, Good for you, you. you didn't deserve the strap no matter what you did. No one. Thank deserved. you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Oh, my God. I can sleep tonight. I've been going through this for years. But, ser- but seriously, this is still a thing on the books, and it's still allowed to continue, no, no, right? No, 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 no. First of all, yeah. um, no, the teachers are not allowed to hit children anymore. You know, that, that, that ended a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, even though this law is in the books, you know, you will not find any school board, I hope, that says you can hit children and give, you know, and strap them. Look, I right. certainly remember that, and I'm a lot older than you, I think, Yona, and I certainly remember uh, kids getting the strap when I went to public school. I even remember one teacher putting a, in grade three, putting a child over her knee and spanking this child oh in front goodness. of all of us. But all oh of that God. is is long gone. So, but but the law is still on the books, and right. I know what you were saying about uh, hitting. Uh, not on, not hitting on the head and so on. That that happened in 2004 because a challenge was brought, you know, against this law, but the Supreme Court upheld it. But it did say, okay, from now on, you can't hit a child under two, and you can't hit a child over 12. That's what you were you were referring to. Right, so exactly. what I what I say is, okay, so the minute you turn two, you're fair game. You know, yeah, to be hit. Exactly. So, uh, you know, but don't, but, but teachers are, and certainly daycare workers, nobody is supposed to be hitting children in those settings. So let me ask you something. The, the work that you did over the years and, and, you know, uh, the work, you know, that you talk, they talk a lot about your work, um, in, uh, this organization that you're, that you're, you know, the work that you do and, and, and the books that you're publishing and so on. But, you know, that you're also mentioned in this article, right, in terms of, uh, of uh, your activities, right, in terms of something you were doing related to, uh, to helping children with this kind of stuff, I believe, right? No, no. No, I'm sorry. I've got, I've got, I've got, I apologize. But you know what? It, but, but what, but what it does have, what, what, what we do have is that there's obviously you've been 
working with you know kids forever and ever. Um, your opinion as it relates to uh, this type of abuse, especially now that we're looking at reconciliation against, uh, you know, looking at all the, the things that we're finding with these uh, uh, unmarked graves for hundreds, if not mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of kids. Uh, mm-hmm. You can only imagine that the torture and the abuse was horrible in those days. Uh, you know, but let me take it. Let me take it to 2021, because you mm-hmm. said, no, it doesn't really happen. Kids, you know, parents aren't teachers aren't allowed to do this anymore. And I agree. The parent, you know, you don't see teachers hitting children or, you know, smacking them or grabbing them by the hair or anything like that. Like I might have seen in the days and mm-hmm. you might have seen in the days mm-hmm. in school. Yeah. But I can tell you that, that teachers today, because I deal with kids, I deal with teenagers, uh, 13 to 20 uh, who are in crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers today do a horrible job sometimes in terms of uh being abusive verbally and emotionally and kids what? being dressed down in class and being made to feel small and being stressed out that way. Um, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not past the abuse of children. We're just past it. Maybe the physical abuse of children. What, well, what's your opinion of that? Okay. Well, we're talking about schools now and I agree that adults don't always know how to talk to kids. You're absolutely right. And words sting and words hurt and, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I imagine teachers are under a lot of stress, but I think good teachers and good schools now talk about trauma-informed teaching yes. and trauma-informed yes. counseling. You know, yes. we're making progress, uh, you yes. know, slowly on these things, and we know that if a kid does something inappropriate in school, it, 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 suspending that child isn't the answer. The answer is, can be saying to the child, did something happen at home today? Or, you know, what's happening in your life or something? In, you know, to, instead of just coming down hard on kids, we need to look at what the child is, is, is uh, experiencing in, at home, at home in, yeah. in his or her life in other places. But, uh, you know, you know. I, I, I got to tell you a story about a family that's got a kid in uh, second grade. Uh, I shared the story, I think, last week or the week before. The family, anyway, we're talk, trying to help glue the family back together. The kid in second grade is being abused, uh, physically uh, bullied by another boy in his class. Uh, the same boy has been abusing some girls in the class, threw, throw, uh, threw a pair of scissors at the teacher. Um, anyway, over a period of four or five weeks, and families are really quite concerned. So when they went to the school... The school, you know, they obviously want, all the families want to make sure that this kid is okay, because obviously this kid can't be going home and coming from a healthy environment if he's acting out like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the school was so restricted, they couldn't do much. They couldn't get someone from the family, uh, the kid's family, to respond. Um, You know, we got children's aid involved, but that takes time. Meantime, this kid continues to go to school and abuse children. Um, At what point is, you know, at what point do we we, uh, take it under our consideration to, I mean, I, I do concern myself with the bully and the kids that are bullied, but we can't just make it about the bully. We have to make it about the victims, too, don't you think? Well, of course. Everybody needs to be safe and right. in the school. That's absolutely true. But, you know, I, I'm not in the school system at the moment. I was, yeah. a, I was a, a sexual health educator, actually, with Toronto Public Health, and I went into the schools in those days, but I've been retired for a while. Uh, however, this this is a law that permits parents to hit children. I I, I think what we're t- you know you're talking about children being be, being bullied and children who are bullies and something's wrong 
when children are bullies. It means something's not right in their lives. So the thing is, Yona, I'm not sure, you know, I wrote this article and you can't imagine how many people said to me, I didn't know this law was still on the books. I didn't know you're still allowed to hit children. No, I don't mean teachers. I mean parents, okay? Uh, and, And so the fact that this law is on the books, the fact that Canada still allows parents to hit their children, um, where 63 other countries have banned it, is appalling. And, that, and that's why I wrote this article, because I thought, and, and I've been writing these articles. Yep. I had something on Huff, Huff, Huffington Post about this, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, things have changed. We know we have to deal differently with children, but I think teachers are under a lot of stress these days. You know, you obviously are involved in in, yep. in these issues. So you know the stress that teachers are under. You know the stress kids are under. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who is a social worker with the Toronto District School Board. And these are tough times for kids and they're tough times for parents, especially yeah, because of time. COVID, you know, when people right. are home and they should be together in school and they're not. So there's all of that. But, you know, there are things that happen to children in their early years uh, that affect them later in life. And I think that's a, a, as much of a concern for that's the danger, isn't program. it? Isn't it? That's that's the danger is how they're going to grow up. You know, I'll tell you something, uh, Ruth, now that I understand kind of your background a little bit better, um, I'd love to have you come back and we can talk about some of this, uh, the, some of the sort of sexual identification and identity type stuff that I'm personally wrestling with as a therapist, trying to understand more so I can do a better job. Uh, but I'm sure parents are, are, are wrestling with it uh, big time as well. W- would you be kind enough to come back and join us in kind of your uh, putting on your other hat now as uh, from your days <laughs> well, of sexual education? Are you comfortable doing that? Well, the problem is I've been retired for some years, and I, I must say when I was a sexual health educator, we, we really weren't dealing with issues around non-binary and trans, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. stuff like that. We, we weren't dealing with those issues when I was working. But now my colleagues, uh, people who are still working in this field, I think, you know, you and I can talk maybe about who might be a better person to come on and talk about this. But I okay. think it, it is a really important thing to talk about. And, and I guess what I understand, and I think you do too, that attitudes about so many things are changing now, aren't they? Uh, I yep. think we're, we're understanding. For example, you know, I have a gay son, and, uh, you know, he came out to us when he was 17, and, uh, and I worried how his life would be. Well, he's now 54 years old. <laughs> and, li- and, and living like a champion, right? No yes, doubt. living a wonderful life. He has a partner and so on. So, you know, and all my friends who, you know, at the time didn't really know how to handle this, everybody's yeah. cool now, okay? Amazing. Well, you're very cool, Ruth. I'm going to figure out a reason to get you back on the air because I just love talking to you. But my, my producer's screaming in my 
my ear that I got to go to break now. But uh, okay. thank you so much for joining me and staying up so late to hang out. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we'll talk again. I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure sometime soon. As soon as we come back from break, we're going to talk about some more stuff, uh, including that Ontario has an opportunity to change radically change mental health support in the years to come. So uh, make sure you get a drink, use the bathroom, do what you got to do, stretch your legs. Come right back. We're going to be busy on the second half here. Yonabud, six forty, Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And it's now around 1017. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, you need to go find them. And if you can't find them, you should probably kind of call 911 if you're concerned enough to think that they might be in danger. Or give Corey a call, 416-870-6400, and he and I will figure out a way to help you. By the way, if you ever want to reach me after the show or during the week when I'm not on air, you can do so at 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808. Be glad to talk to you. I do get back to people. I, uh, people will take calls for me and uh, get them to me, and I'll make sure that I call you back or send you back a text or email. But uh, we will talk, and I'll help in whatever way I can. So feel free to, to reach out. You know, I was born a long time ago, and... Um, uh, my birthday's in December, and uh, right around Christmas time, and uh, I was born here in Toronto, snowy, rain, a miserable, cold, sleety night, according to my mom, uh, who, God bless her, in 94, still tells me the story. And when I was born, uh, I was lacking uh, um, uh, ducks in my eyes to allow me to cry properly. So my eyes, until they obviously fixed it, but my eyes at birth for a while were very puffy, uh, quite swollen and um, slits, basically like, you know, slits in my eyes. Uh, I was born with jet black hair, a uh, full head of jet black straight hair, and um, didn't look at all like anyone else in my family. Uh, my Uncle Sam, as I would say, um, he would called my mother, uh, but, you know, he, he it would go on to, to laugh and to joke about the fact I looked more like, um, Mr. Young, uh, who was our, uh, who was Chinese, um, and he, they provided my mother would shop there for fruits and vegetables. I'm very, you know, very close friend of the family. Just to, I remember him as a child. Um, but they thought, perhaps jokingly, that I was more like Mr. Young's family than my mother's family. My uncle actually called several times on his drive to Florida in those days uh, to make sure that she, in fact, had the right baby, and she had to convince him that they had the right baby. She herself double checked to make sure that she had the right baby because I didn't look like anybody. And frankly, in so many ways, I still don't look like anybody in my family. And I wasn't the greatest of kids, as you've gathered by some of the stories, like getting the strap and other things I share openly on air when it's appropriate. Um, but I wasn't the greatest, uh, greatest of kids growing up. And, you know, my, I would joke to my mom that I was adopted because uh, she loved my brothers so much better than she loved me. As it turns out, I was her favorite and still am today. So uh, there you go. So, you know, you never know, right? Like babies are so, are so little and they don't really have such defined, uh, many don't have defined, uh, you know, features yet. And, you know, but you kind of know if your kid's your own kid, right? My mom would know if I was her own kid. And it wasn't through uh, in vitro or anything. You know, she had a baby the regular way, you know, the the natural way, if you will. And... Um, three other brothers, by the way, so I wasn't the only one. She's a, a machine, to say the least, and quite an incredible mother 
But um, I would go on to tell you that sometimes mistakes happen. I mean, even my eldest son, who's now uh, well into his uh, years of raising his own children, my grandchildren, um, I remember when I went in to uh, see him when he was born, uh, when you approached the, the nursery in, in, the, in the little cribs, the little things, the plastic things they were in, you know, you could see the cards with the, the baby's names. And, he, and the back of his card said Chong. But the front of his card said Bud. So if you looked at him from the front, you could see the baby was Bud. But if you approached the cribs or the these bassinets from behind, it looked like Chong. So it was like I would joke with people that here we go, we're going to be confused again. Well, here's a situation that's not nearly as cute and funny because a couple of California couples ended up swapping babies after their IVF mix-up. Yeah, this is according to uh, Global News, National News. A California couple who gave up the to the wrong gave up birth to the wrong gave birth excuse me to the wrong baby had to trade with another couple to get their biological infant back. They're now taking legal action. No kidding, against a fertility clinic that they claim is responsible for the mistake. Her name is Daphne Cardinal, and with the support of her husband Alexander, they decided to try in vitro fertilization. They weren't able to have uh, children um, naturally. So they had some help, which is a wonderful thing. The technology is amazing. Lots of wonderful children being born into very loving, caring parents. And with a board of giving their daughter a sibling. So they were successful in getting pregnant and had what they assumed was their second biological daughter in 2019. However, the baby didn't share many physical traits with mom or dad, kind of similar to baby Yona, right? The child had a darker complexion than her parents noticeably darker hair than any of her immediate family members. That was me. My skin was more oily and more yellow or more, more brownish in color. Um, not yellow, but brownish in color. My hair was black. I didn't look like my family, right? So she had a weird sort of gut reaction when the baby was born that it, it wasn't really anything logical, she says, but it was just kind of an instinct her husband would go on to tell the news network. So the couple wondered for weeks about the baby's appearance. And when their fertility clinic called to ask for a photograph of the child, they grew much more perplexed. So the father, Alexander, he remembers telling People Magazine that he thought it just that maybe they know something that we don't, he remembers telling the interviewer. So an effort to ally their worries, to, to allay their worries, to, to, to make them feel better, Daphne, she ordered, the, the mother ordered a DNA test to see if the Cardinals were the parents of this infant they had. Overwhelmed by feelings of fear, betrayal, anger, and heartbreak, she told reporters at the news conference with her husband announcing the lawsuit that she was robbed of the ability to carry my own child. I never had the opportunity to grow and bond with her baby during pregnancy. I feel I could feel her kick. I had no idea at the time that the greatest potential for joy would bring us such enduring pain and trauma. The fertility clinic transferred to Daphne an embryo that belonged to, yep, strangers, their lawyer said. She was, in other words, sort of an unwilling and unknowing surrogate for another couple's baby. you imagine? The couple reeling from the news wondered what had happened to their embryo. It turned out that another couple had carried the Cardinal's embryo to full term. And the two mothers gave birth within a week in September of 2019, within a week apart. The couples tried to figure out what to do. In the first weeks after the mix-up was confirmed, the families would meet up almost daily. Eventually, their lawyer said they decided that they were going to switch babies so that the children could be with their biological parents. They, they were already four months old. You get me? 
They're already four months old. Now, I mean, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. You raise this little baby for the first three or four months. You're bonding regardless of the fact that they don't look like yours, right? Bonding and, and sharing and, you know, loving and and the, have that child pulled away from you because it's not your own. Yeah, given another one, sure, swap out for sure. But it's not the same, any mother will tell you, and any father with his salt who's actively involved in raising children and with their children will tell you the same thing. It doesn't feel right. I raised three boys. I would tell you if they weren't mine. Sometimes it's scary how much to mine they are, <laughs> their mother would say. But in the first weeks after the mix-up was confirmed, they decided they would get together, right? So uh, they found that the devastation, it was knowing that they, they, in those early months of bonding that they missed, the whole newborn phase and everything. So that's the whole basis of their lawsuit. Take the lawsuit aside here for a minute, right? They announced on Monday that they planned to sue the fertility clinic, blah, and the doctor that's involved, and so on and so forth. Although both families bear the psychological scars of the unusual and extremely rare mistake, on the bright spot is that they've formed between them an incredible bond. They spend holidays together, special holidays and occasions together, and they're forging a kind of a larger family between the two couples, the new children, and their existing uh, children. There's no book for this, Alexander, the father says. There's no person to give you advice. We just ended up sort of huddling together, the four of us, and it's a blessing that we're all on the same page. Apparently, these types of mix-ups aren't rare. They happen fairly common. In 2019, a couple from Glendale, California, sued another fertility clinic, claiming their embryo was mistakenly implanted in some woman in New York who gave birth to their son as well as a second boy belonging to another couple. I don't believe they got their child back. So this worked out really nicely. This, these kids are going to be loved for and taken care of, and they're going to bond together as, a, as, as one, you know, united um, family, and as we, you know, all kinds of, of modern families, if you will, these days. Uh, so it's wonderful for the children, wonderful for the families, but it doesn't always work out so well, right? Story doesn't always come to such a happy ending. So I'm really happy that we could uh, share it. Uh, crazy story. Um, but, uh, yeah, my mother will still tell you if you ask her, what happened when I was born and when my Uncle Sam called to see if I was really your kid? She'll remember it like it's yesterday. Um, by the way, if you have elderly parents and you want to keep their brains sharp, keep asking them to tell you stories about yourself. Although mine aren't so great, but it's nice that she could remember them. Thank you for listening. I thought that would be a great story to share. We'll be right back to talk about uh, how some families aren't doing so well uh, with this next wave coming. And, uh, yeah, we just got to do a better job of helping people. We'll be right back shortly. Going about 640. Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Boy, this night just flies by, doesn't it? Two hours, boom, like it's nothing, you know, just here today and gone the next minute. Whoa, nothing. Uh, Time just flies when you're having fun. Study on the pandemic's impact on families shows depression. Anxiety uh, this year is worse than ever, uh, even worse than the first wave. You're listening to Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how are you feeling, everybody out there? Yeah, you're doing okay? Uh, I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Give us a buzz here right now. I'd love to hear from you. How are you doing in this, you know, this fourth wave, if you will? I'm so tired of calling waves. One would think I should be a surfer or something. But um, you're getting just sick and tired of all this. You're just having a hard time. It's just, it's enough is enough. You're tired of hearing about vaccines and no vaccines and where you can go and where you can't go. And it seems like some of the, a lot of the, the, the protesting is gone now that the weather's getting cold. 
So I'll give you a voice here. You want to call? Give us a call. 416-870-6400 or outside of the area, 888-225-8255. Love to hear from you. And uh, if you want to send me an email sometime, you road to recovery at 640toronto.com. And you can always listen in here. If you're not in your car, you can do so at um, logging into 640toronto.com and re- listening to the live stream of myself and my colleagues throughout the week as well. So uh, my stress level went from zero to 100, recalls a Brampton mother. Uh, third wave of COVID-19 infections in Ontario shuttered schools last spring. Talika Walsh is her name. She figured she could manage working from home while her teenagers did remote learning. So any break in her day was spent desperately trying to get her 13-year-old daughter, I believe, her 13-year-old who has autism and is nonverbal, to focus on his activities, male. His name is Ajani. Focus on his activities. Meanwhile, the 16-year-old son, Trevon, a normally outgoing kid, was physically cut off from his friends and holed up in his room doing classroom work. So we've all heard the story. I know, blah, blah, blah. We've heard this all again and again. But now that, you know, things are half kind of this hybrid thing, right? Half uh, half in school, half out of school, half happening, not half happening. We're not sure what's going to be open and what's not going to be open, right? Like, So this is really messing with people. Not just kids, but with these kids' parents and, and people that don't have children are having a hard time figuring this stuff out. She was just drained, she goes on to say, felt anxious and burnt out, like all of us did, I'm sure. She's far from alone, right? According to some new published report Monday detailing the results of the second Ontario Parent Survey, researchers, researchers at McMaster University and the offer uh, the Offered Center for Child Studies are taking are tracking the impact of the pandemic on health and well-being of families. In some key areas, parents were worse off this year actually than last year. The overall depressive and anxiety symptoms were higher than our original findings during the first wave, said the lead, the lead researcher. Her name is Andrea Gonzalez. She's an associate prof and Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Family Health and Preventative Interventions. During the first wave, they surveyed 7,400 parents and caregivers with children up to the age of 17. This year, between May and July, during the third wave, they garnered input from 10,700 and some odd respondents, 778. Last year, 57% of caregivers reported feeling significant depressive symptoms in the previous week. So if you're taking care of someone, let's just say that someone's a kid, and you're in a depressive state, it's going to have an impact on the kids or the families you're looking after. PSWs people that are in in long-term care facilities. Why do they burn out? Because it takes a lot to take care of someone. My bride, my beautiful wife, we call her Pumpkin because we just keep her anonymous. Pumpkin looks after, not looks after, because my father and mother kind of look, my father looks after my mother, does a great job of it. But my my wife is kind of the the representative from our family that kind of helps out where she can. And sometimes my mother can have a difficult day and she can be very challenging can be very challenging on my father. So now we worry about my father so he doesn't burn out taking care of my mother. And, of course, we have to worry about my mother because she's not uh, quite as active as my dad and doesn't have as much going on in terms of her days, so she needs a little more distraction and more time, perhaps a little more care. But equally, right, they're they're in their 90s, mid-90s, thank God. So they need some attention, right? For one set of parents... It takes work. Not that it's not loving work and caring work and work that that we does, we should be doing and that we would you know we wouldn't think twice of you know, of of not doing. 
But imagine doing that for 30 seniors in a shift. You know, 30 of my mom, 30 of my dad, God willing, right? Healthy people, but they still need some level of care. Some of it's just physical because they're not as physically capable. A lot of it's just hand-holding if they're lonely, especially during the pandemic. So can you imagine doing this for a period of time for two, almost two years without much let up, without much give? And that's why we're seeing so many people on the front lines all burnt out, right? Last year, 30% reported moderate to hot levels, high levels of anxiety compared to 38% this year. So it's gone up 8%. And last year wasn't great, right? Almost half of the parents surveyed this year said they sought help from mental health professionals and 40% reported needing help at least once during the pandemic and not able to find it. Okay. Remember, this is all about the impact that this is having. This goes back to my story uh, a couple of segments ago on how Ontario has an opportunity here to do, radically change mental health support. One of the striking findings was when we asked people why they didn't seek help, there was a high proportion who didn't even know where to go for it, or the wait times were too long, says Gonzalez, who co-authored the report along with Harriet McMillan, a professor of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences and Pediatrics. We need to get some messaging out there, they say, how to help families cope. Resources are, in fact, out there. They're just not easy to find. Duh. Right? I'll tell you, easy to find a place to go get a needle. If you want to go get a vaccine, flu or otherwise, easy to find that. Hard to find support, though, for your mental health. More than one-third surveyed this year said that the pandemic harmed their kids in particular the lack of in-person learning. Yeah, we all agree to that. We're going to see that real for the next uh, number of years. That's not going to go away so fast. Situations improved a little bit, declining due to the decline in the infection. The experts go on to say researchers are planning on doing another survey in early 2022 to see how families are coping. A Walsh, who's a, family, a Brampton mother, is now feeling a little bit better that the kids are back in school. She credits counseling sessions for caregivers organized by the parent councils at their, at their boys' schools with helping her develop coping strategies. And on those toughest days, she would pay out of pocket for a relief worker to spend time with her, her, one of her sons so that she could have a break. Absolutely. Smart girl, smart woman. Glad she was able to do it and afford to be able to do it. She worries about the impacts of, on her child, on, on her uh, uh, special needs child's learning loss and the integra- reintegration of her other, elder son back into his social world. But she's more concerned about you know, about what's the, what's going to be, what the future is going to look like, right? What impact this is going to have on their education is going forward, not so much what we've already seen. Um, a Mississauga mother, her name is Romana, um, she has three children. And uh, she says learning loss over the pandemic was a huge concern. Her, her eldest son, seven, uh, Adam, 17, was so stressed about the grades he needed for university. Like lots of kids are trying to get into university or college and better themselves in some way, shape, or form. Not knowing what they got out of this last year of education may have an impact on that. Who knows? You know, in her family, she says academics are very important. She's a stay-at-home mom who's also a community activist and a parent activist. We've just had to sort of release and let go of any and all expectations, kind of in survival mode. A lot of parents are saying now, don't worry so much about university. Let's take a break. Maybe you'll go back in a year. Not so much right now. We're going to see this as time goes out. People are starting to feel burnt out. You can't just bail on your family. You have to kind of just put something aside. It's usually work or self-care. Well, let me tell you something, my friends, and I love you. You're, my, you're the best audience ever. But I'm going to tell you like this. If you don't take care of yourself, you are not going to be able to take care of anybody. So putting your self-care aside so you can help others, 
All that does is, is diminish your ability to help more people tomorrow, the next day, and the day after. If you don't take time off to make sure that you got your head on straight, you can't do anything. And physically, too, right? Just to take a break, get something to eat, stretch your legs, have a go somewhere to laugh, see some friends, right? Just a break in whatever way you can. Some people have access to private tutoring for the kids. Not everybody can afford it. That's certainly a way to go if you're able to do so, right? But for the families, for the mothers, and for the fathers, and for the caregivers, this time has been so brutal. And it seems like this we're just at, we're seeing it act out, act out in kind of in a worse way now, as opposed to something that we should see getting a little bit better now that things are a touch brighter. Anyway, when we come back from uh, our break, we're going to talk about how we're going to get better help from people on the street and uh, the new 911 call diversion pilot project. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, our guest about that project and how there's now a mix between police officers and people with mental health care uh, expertise to come out and meet the uh, those that are calling who, who that call, that response would be appropriate for. So uh, when we come back, that's what we're going to talk about. Love to hear from you, 416-870-6400. Yonabud, 640, Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yonabud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie, we're just getting ready to end this uh, road trip for today, but uh, we've got some good stuff to share just to bring it in, uh, bring it all in comfy and cozy, and I'm sure, hope somebody will pick you up when we drop you off at the end so that you'll have a, a fun and enjoyable evening and weekend. Looks like it's going to be pretty chilly and uh, potentially some snowfall. So mom, it might be the time to get double check and make sure you got some warm and toasties some of those boots and coats and stuff that you maybe put away and forgot about. Now's the time to bring them out. Anyway, listen, if you need 911 help and you know, you're like some of the people that we read about who don't really need a police officer, but need someone to listen to them and provide the, the kind of care and support perhaps that a poor person that might have might be you know faced with a, a trauma, traumatic moment, difficult time. You never know, right? So for the next year or so, people in crisis in downtown Toronto who call 911 will, will get the help and they'll get better connected with the appropriate mental health supports that they need. So earlier this week, the Toronto Police, this is an article from a week ago, uh, earlier this week, the Toronto Police Services and Gerstein Crisis Centre, an excellent facility, launched a one-year 911 call diversion project, right? Service, uh, the new service, which comes in response to calls from mental health communities to uh, reform police responding, uh, police policing responses, excuse me, if you will, now seeing crisis workers respond to non-emergency mental health-related calls and so on. The plan is to embed, embed um a crisis or Gerstein crisis workers with Toronto Police Service Communications call centers for the next 12 months for 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Toronto Police said these two teams will work collaboratively but distinctively, distinctly as TPS call takers will evaluate it from uh, 51, 52, and 14 divisions uh, have no imminent risk and are suitable for diversion. Rachel Bromberg is the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. It's a coalition of stakeholders in Toronto that started working to build a civilian-led mental health emergency response service in 2020. Rachel joins us this evening. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I know it's late at night, and um, I hope you uh, aren't having a hard time staying up or you're not missing something more fun. But we do appreciate you being here. Um, tell us a little bit about this breakthrough uh, opportunity and kind of your role in it and what you hope for and so on. Just uh, share with us, if you would. 
Yeah, so the crisis response pilot that's been launched collaboratively between TPS and the Gerstein Center, like like you said, um, they're co-locating Gerstein Center crisis workers within 911 um, communication center so that if you or if, you know, someone that you know is in crisis and you call 911 um, and you say, you know, I'm in crisis or my loved one is in crisis, um, the initial TPS call taker will assess to determine whether this is a call that could be better served by a mental health worker rather than a police officer and will ask, you know, is, is would you feel comfortable being transferred to a Gerstein Center crisis worker? And if the caller is comfortable with that, then the Gerstein Center crisis worker can, you know, connect that person with resources, de-escalate the call over the phone, basically figure out what does that person need in this moment to stay safe and feel better without necessarily involving police where that where that is not where that's not necessary. One one would think that uh, you know most people would think that this is something that should have existed long before now. Uh, you know, just uh, mixing some uh, mix and match some folks that understand people in crisis along with others in in a call center. Um, how long did it take for this to come to fruition? And kind of you know what were the stepping stones along the way? Yeah, so the city of Toronto has been working really hard for the past um, year and a half, probably since the summer of 2020 in particular, to reimagine what crisis response services in the city should look like and trying to develop a more integrated model that can respond to people at different levels of crisis um, based on their particular level of need. So making sure that the right person with the right tools, the right situation can respond to the circumstance. And then, you know, Toronto, for example, already has a police partnered crisis team that pairs a police officer with the mental health nurse. So in some circumstances, that team will be the right response to a mental health crisis. In other circumstances, the call can be resolved over the phone entirely um, with a trained crisis worker. In other circumstances, you might not need a police officer doing a mobile response, but maybe you need a mental health crisis worker who can do a mobile response. So the city's been working on a number of initiatives to ensure that people in different levels of crisis can get the care that they need. You know, I do, um, certainly prior to the pandemic and, you know, a little bit more now that things are opening up, I did a lot of, uh, over my years, did a lot of crisis work in, in the street, a lot of intervention type stuff and finding missing people and so on. And, and, and over the last number of years, have had the opportunity to actually work with uh, up in York Region and in, and in Toronto, uh, the city of Toronto, uh, work with uh, different um, police officer groups with, uh, that are also uh, police officers and a mental health nurse um, in collaboration in the same vehicle, uh, showed mm-hmm. up to, have shown up to a few suicide calls with me and so on. Um, I, I got to tell you, Rachel, I was not just impressed by the uh, hospital-placed uh, uh, nurse who has the nurse practitioner with that expertise, but the police officers that were on those teams were, were exceptionally careful and, and mm-hmm. you know, much, much more, um, uh, much more, um, I guess, informed in their approach and in their counseling support and so on. So I, I don't think, you know, what's really what I'm seeing on the street level at least is that it's not just the, the the support people in the in the unit with the with the police officers, but police officers that are, that are agreeing to be part of these groups are also stepping up to be a little mm-hmm. bit more a little more counselor and a little less uh, a little less police officer. But my understanding from the nurses that I've talked to that for the most part the police are there to protect them, not so much um, worrying about who they're going to call on. 
Yeah, so there are definitely some circumstances in which having a police officer and a nurse attend the scene is appropriate or necessary to ensure safety. Um, And the police officers on the MCIT do receive extensive training in being able to support people in mental health crisis as well. What is um, what is your organization all about? It's uh, it's called Reach Out Response Network. Give me an idea of what yeah. you do, how, how it was born and what your intentions and goals are. Yeah, so our organization is an advocacy-focused nonprofit, and our goal has always been to support the City of Toronto in developing um, alternative crisis response services that can meet people's needs um, without involving police where possible, uh, but recognizing really where there's a continuum of care provided and creating as many options as possible for people to get the kind of the kind of care that they need from the person with, who is best suited for that in the moment. What's your, um, can I ask you your background, day job, training? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, I've been working in the mental health field for about eight years. I've also done a lot of crisis work. Um, I worked for a couple of years with the Youth Mental Health Agency. Um, I worked for a couple of years with CAMH, um, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, doing yep. trauma-informed de-escalation training for their staff. Um, cool. And basically through a lot of my work, I saw uh, the challenges that people in crisis experience and how people are often you know, turned away from one service, told to go to another service, told to go to another service, and how yeah. it can be really hard yeah. to figure yeah. out, like, which service to access and to actually get in to see someone when you're in crisis. Um, And, you know, there can be long wait times. Um, So this is what really led our organization to advocate really strongly for a more integrated model of crisis support that can be accessible via the number that everyone knows to call, which is 911. Are you a, are you a, 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 are you a trained therapist? Or are you an educator? Can you give me an idea, if you don't mind, about your sort of uh, training background, if that's appropriate? Yeah. So a lot of my background to now has been in peer work. Right now, I'm doing I'm at school doing my master's in social work and also my oh, cool. um, law degree. So I'm doing like a combined wow. degree in law and social work. Wow. So what are you going to do, practice law and social justice, or are you just going to use your law degree to uh, prop you so you can do a better, maybe work you know, work on messed up lawyers? I'm just uh, sort of kidding. But uh, that, that's, a, that's a, yeah, no kidding. That's, uh, I'll tell you something, get your MSW and uh, give me a call because we're constantly looking for good help, and you sound like you're just a, just an, an angel in disguise here. Um, so i got, I got to drill down here for a second. It's, just, it's in my head. So law and social work, what's the, what's the goal here? Because your mother wanted you to be a lawyer or because it's just uh, somehow you've got a blend in mind that's going to be something powerful? Um, hmm, that's actually a really good question. Thank um, you. I think that law and social work are really complement each other in a lot of ways. Um, okay. A lot of people who are experiencing a mental health crisis, for example, are also running into problems that, you know, could require support from a lawyer. Um, And a lot of people who are running into legal problems are people who have also run into mental health problems. Um, So being able to bring the perspective of both of those, I think, is valuable. And I mean, like, if you want to work at a legal clinic or if you want to work with, like, mental health law, like consent and capacity board cases, something like that. I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but I have some ideas. (laughs) Well, that's um, amazing. I mean, you're just you're an amazing uh, human being, and it's just incredible that you're you're kind of stuck in not stuck in the middle, but you managed to find yourself in the middle of what I think is going to be an earth 
earth-shattering, world-changing event now that we can you know, work towards this 911 collaboration team. Uh, save a lot of lives, first of all, um, and de-escalate a lot of uh, potentially uh, very volatile situations that we've been reading about you know, over the years of people who have uh, you know, called police for help and didn't really end up getting help, ended up getting arrested instead. And I see, it, you know, I see a lot of patients in my practice that you know, have uh, had you know, psychotic breaks in the middle of a family situation. The family calls the police. All they want to do is get the kid or get the family or get the husband, get the mother, get some help. And they end up, police end up coming and arresting them because, in fact, I guess at some level did break the law. And, you know, it goes on and on. So they're going to need someone like you to defend them. And I'm going to need someone like you to continue to talk to me about this stuff. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Corey Manuel, who's our producer here, to put your name on our list of regular guests, if that's okay, if you don't mind. And come, keep coming back to you every once in a while when we think it fits your, uh, your, uh, your bailiwick because I think you're onto something really special. Uh, you, um, obviously your parents have done a great job with you. Um, but you can tell them I said that. Um, and you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think you're, you're, you know, if you're in the middle of this stuff, we can watch it together. We can analyze it together. And, um, anything else cool that you've got coming up that you think you want to share, just let us know. And we'll give you some airtime. How, how do you sound about that? Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. Okay, terrific. So I'm talking to Rachel Bromberg. She's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. It is a charitable organization. They could use your money, your help, your support. So reach out to them in whatever fashion you can. How do they do that, Rachel? How do they get a hold of you? Um, People can go to our website at reachouttoronto.ca. That's reachouttoronto.ca. My guest is Rachel Bromberg. You'll hear from her again, I'm sure. Thank you all for listening to us this evening. We've uh, tried to share and be uh, as informative and impactful as possible. I'm really glad that uh, we're able to be here together and, um, and be on this road to recovery because it's a lonely place if you're doing it by yourself. So just remember, be fair to each other. Be care, to, care for one another. Hug the one you're with. Tell them you love them if you do. And if you don't, fake it anyway. Talk to you next week. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.